Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Kerry Parker, and we've got a lot of news to cover today. There's been a lot of stuff going on, uh, some of it related to the COVID virus and other things just happening because like they normally happen. So we, we've got plenty of things to cover. Um, kind of a smattering of things. We're going to talk about a recent bit of research that showed that they found over 12,000 Android apps that contained master passwords and secret keys and secret commands and basically backdoors. Uh, talk about talk about those and what that means to you. Uh, Cloudflare, uh, on April 1st, as they've done every year for the last three years, has released a new product for consumers, uh, free, as the other ones have been. In the past, it was the 1.1.1.1 DNS server. Uh, and then last year, it was the add-on to that with the Warp VPN. Uh, and this year, they're expanding that even further. Uh, they've got a 1.1.1.1 for families is what they're calling it. Uh, and uh, not just being for, you know, quick and uh, private access, but now it's going to be for blocking adult content or and or uh, malware, bad, uh, known bad websites. And as I said, we've got some COVID-19, some coronavirus news items. One is an interesting and, and of course, scary <laughs> tool that Google has put out that will basically show you through six different categories, the level of movement of people uh, around the country, actually around the globe. And the scary part is how they know that. <laughs> so we'll talk about that. And an important, an important article from the EFF that I'm going to read, I don't read parts of the electronic frontier foundation. And we'll get into this more, but right now is a, we really have to be careful because whenever there's a crisis like this, there's a tendency to overreact and sacrifice our rights uh, for what we believe is uh, more security. So uh, anyway, EFF had a good write-up on that and a good balanced approach on that. So I'm going to talk about that. And then Marriott has had yet another data breach that exposed 5 million guest information. And this is a different one from the last one that exposed about 5 million people. So we'll, we'll talk about what that means and how that might affect you. And also one last coronavirus story. There's a lot of stimulus scams out there. Now that the government has promised to send us a lot of money, there's, there are going to be bad guys that are want to capitalize on that. So I'm going to talk to you about a few of these that we've seen already uh, and just some general tips on how to avoid those. And finally, during this time of self-quarantining and social distancing and basically staying at home and working from home, a lot of us still want social interaction and there are, there are services for that, many of them actually, uh, for, you know, doing remote video chats. And that's very understandable that people want to be doing that. And we've actually seen these services, the uses of usage of these services skyrocket, uh, in the last few weeks. But one of the more popular ones, uh, arguably maybe the most popular one is zoom, but it's got some serious problems. And, uh, we're going to talk about those. And then I'm going to give you as the tip of the week, some other alternatives. So, lots to cover, so let's get to it. First up, I ran across this article in ZDNet, um, and it's, you know, we've seen many of these kind of articles before, uh, unfortunately, and, you know, I've said many times on this show that I, that I prefer iOS to Android for, um, definitely for privacy, and for security as well, and it, it's kind of like the old Mac versus PC back in the day. A lot of people like their Windows computers because that allowed them to do more things and were more flexible and, uh, you know, allowed you to basically install whatever you want. It was kind of loosey-goosey in terms of security back in the day. And with that added flexibility, gave you more options to basically shoot yourself in the foot. 
Um, and it's kind of like that now with iOS, which is, you know, iPhone and iPad, uh, iOS and Android. And Android has, is seen as being much more flexible, giving you many more options, uh, you know, which can be good. Uh, but there's also a lot of different ways to sidestep their security and what they call side-loading apps, which means you can kind of put apps in your phone that didn't really come from the approved Play, you know, the Google Play Store. And of course, when you do that, you're opening yourself up to problems. So anyway, um, let's get into the specifics of this article. And uh, I just want to read this article from ZDNet. A comprehensive academic study published this week has discovered that hidden backdoor-like behavior, such as secret access keys, master passwords, and secret commands in more than 12,700 Android applications. To discover this hidden behavior, academics from Europe and the U.S. developed a custom tool named InputScope, which they used to analyze input form fields found inside more than 150,000 Android applications. More precisely, academics analyzed the top 100,000 Play Store apps, the top 20,000 apps hosted on third-party app stores, and more than 30,000 apps that came pre-installed on Samsung handsets. And the research team uh, quotes here says, Our evaluation uncovered a concerning situation. We identified 12,706 apps containing a variety of backdoors, such as secret keys, master passwords, and secret commands, unquote. Researchers say these hidden backdoor mechanisms could allow attackers to gain unauthorized access to the user's account. Further, if the attacker had physical access to a device and one of these apps was installed, it could also grant attackers access to, to a phone or allow them to run code on the device with elevated privileges. And here's some examples of what they found. And, and here's a quote from the research team. Uh, they said, By manually examining several mobile apps, we found that a popular remote control app with 10 million installs contained a master password that can unlock access even when locked remotely by phone user when the device is lost. Meanwhile, we also discovered a popular screen locker app with 5 million, install, 5 million installs uses an access key to reset arbitrary users' passwords to unlock the screen and enter the system. In addition, we also found that a live streaming app with 5 million installs contains an access key to enter its administrative interface, through which an attacker can reconfigure the app and unlock additional functionality. Finally, we found a popular translation app with 1 million installs contains a secret key to bypass the payment for advanced services, such as removing the advertisements displayed in the app." Unquote. As can be seen from the examples provided by the research team, some issues clearly pose a danger to the user's safety and the data stored on the device, while others were just harmless Easter eggs or debugging features that accidentally made it into production. In total, researchers said they found more than 6,800 apps with hidden backdoor functions on the Play Store, more than 1,000 on third-party stores, and more than 4,800 apps that came pre-installed pre on Samsung devices. All right, so what's the upshot here? Well, that's a good question. So... I think it just comes back, to, you know, for me that, you know, if you really have a choice, if you're, you know, in the market for a new phone and you really care about security and, and honestly, privacy, really, you should be looking at iOS devices, iPhones, iPads, um, Apple, you know, while they're maybe more restrictive, that actually turns usually, usually turns into better security. And they've definitely shown that they're much more dedicated to privacy than Android, which is, of course, owned by Google. All right, next up, uh, Cloudflare has a really new, cool consumer service that they're offering came out on April 1st, like the, like they've done for the last three years now. And we, of course, have had John Grant coming on the show. I think he's the reigning leader in terms of number of visits on the show. I think he's up to gosh, four or five now. Anyway, they've just released a new product and it's called 1.1.1.1 for families. And that's a bit of a hard thing to say, but so that's an IP address. One dot, it's a very simple one. One of the very, one of the most trivial IP addresses you can have. And DNS 
is domain and service. And that is, as I've said before, basically the phone book of the internet. So when you want to go to a website and you enter the website's name, that's got to be translated into an IP address because that's actually how computers talk and how internet traffic is routed uh, around the globe. So two years ago on, I guess, 2018 on April 1st, they debuted the DNS service 1.1.1.1, which was quick and private uh, because most people's DNS services by default, if you do nothing, uh, you get from your ISP or internet service provider. And so at home, that would be, you know, Comcast or uh, Spectrum or Verizon or whoever provides your home internet access. That's your internet service provider. Uh, the communication protocols of the internet are nice and set up such that if you just plug in your modem and you get your, uh, your IP address, it also comes with a default DNS server. And so when any device hooked up to that router, basically any device on your home network wants to go to a website or anything else that requires an internet lookup, they go to the internet service providers, DNS, which means that the, your internet service provider knows every single place that you go on the internet and when you went there and how often you go there. Which is an obviously, which is an obvious privacy problem. So uh, Cloudflare's thing was, well, they they already provide all sorts of really cool services for enterprises, which they charge a lot of money for, and that's how they make that's how they make their living. Uh, but they wanted to provide some things to regular consumers that for free, you know, to kind of show their gratitude. And their one dot one dot one dot one DNS service is not only probably faster at looking up than your internet service provider, uh, but it's much more private. And to add on to that, they later added this capability of what's called DNS over HTTPS. And if you remember that the S and HTTPS is for secure, what that means is even at, because the DNS queries by themselves, by default, are not encrypted. So even though you're not using your ISP's DNS, you're still sending your DNS queries through your ISP to get to Cloudflare. Um, but they solve that with this DNS over HTTPS or DOH that encrypts that traffic so that the ISP can't see what you're doing. Anyway, the next year, last year, 2019, they debuted Warp, which is their free mobile VPN service. And we brought the CTO on to talk about the, both those things. And this year, they've got a brand new product. And now it's a DNS service uh, for families is what they're calling it. It's actually two different services. Um, one new DNS service is 1.1.1.2. Uh, and it's it's for blocking known bad websites. So what this might help with is if you accidentally click on a wrong link, or if you've got an IOT device in your house that is compromised, or you've got, uh, you know, somebody visiting your house, using your Wi-Fi, going to a bad website and getting infected. Uh, and if they get infected while they're on your computer land, then that device could then be used to infect others. So anyway, so uh, 1.1.1.2, if you use that for your DNS server, uh, will use their known security intelligence to block known bad websites. And then there's another one, 1.1.3, that if you use that service, that will block known bad websites and it will block adult content. So that's where the families part comes in. So uh, there was another, another service, I think, called OpenDNS that did this as well. But Cloudflare is basically now op giving you the opportunity as a parent, if you want to, within at least within your house, block access to adult websites, along with potentially malware-infested websites, you can use 1.1.3 as your DNS provider. And the really cool thing is that basically if you, it's a, it's a one-stop thing. It's a pretty simple change to make. Uh, if you just make this at your home's router, uh, that will affect every single device on your home network for free, automatically. So if you want to check that out, you can just go to cloudflare.com. 
uh, or maybe go to blog.cloudflare.com because it's certainly going to be one of the top articles there. And you can read all about it, including uh, simple instructions for how to set this up at home. One note is that these new services don't yet uh, don't yet support the DNS over HTTPS. They say that's coming. Uh, and also, they're, they're also said they're going to be rolling out some more features soon that will give you more of a, uh, a way to customize these links so that you can actually whitelist some sites that may have been blocked, you know, in case you want to make the call. Or, you know, maybe maybe something that Cloudflare thinks is not good for your family, you're okay with. They're also talking about doing time of day stuff, you know, so you can block access to maybe social media sites after a certain time uh, and that sort of thing. All right, next up, we got a few articles around the whole coronavirus stuff. Uh, obviously, as these, you know, these crisis events hit, there's going to be a lot of news related to that. And there's going to be a lot of scammers trying to take advantage of that. And we also need to be careful that during times like this, we don't panic. And in that panic, agree to give away a lot of our human rights, supposedly in exchange for being more secure, like kind of like, like we did it in, during after 9-11. So anyway, uh, let's start with this first one. And this is... Um, from Engadget, and I'll just read from this article. It's about a new service that Google is offering to help uh, you know, help people understand whether or not our mobility has been going up or down uh, based on area, and they've got areas all around the world. So let me read this uh, read from this article from Engadget. Google has unveiled the COVID nineteen community mobility reports in an effort to help public health officials understand how people are moving about in response to the coronavirus pandemic. The reports show location data for folks who have agreed to share their location history with Google in order to show places that are following instructions to shelter in place or not. Now, let me just stop there to say, you know, it says for those people who have agreed to share it, that's on by default. So, so you didn't really agree other than by installing the app. If you if you don't want to share your location with Google, you've got to tell them not to. And again, realize that Google owns Android, so <laughs> the mobility information they're getting is from everybody carrying an Android phone. Or frankly, carrying an iOS phone that has a Google app installed where you've given that Google app access to your location. Like, for example, Waze. That's owned by Google as well. Anyway, back to the article. And this is a quote from Google GOSVP Jen Fitzpatrick. It says, quote, as global communities respond to the COVID-19 pandemic, there's been an increasing emphasis on public health strategies like social distancing measures to slow the rate of transmission. In Google Maps, we use aggregated anonymized data showing how busy certain types of places are, helping identify when a local business tends to be the most crowded. We have heard from the public health officials that this same type of aggregated anonymized data could be helpful as they make critical decisions to combat COVID-19, unquote. And you can tell you can tell there that Google is sensitive to their privacy issues because they made they went well out of their way to say this was aggregated anonymized data, which it probably is. However, you must realize that they have the non-anonymized, non-aggregated data, meaning your specific location information. Uh, they have that as well. It's just that the data that they've taken that data and sanitized it uh, to, to provide this service, as they should. But just realize that they still have this information themselves. All right. The article goes on. It says, the reports are available to all users in 131 countries. And in some regions, you can search for regional state and county data. Once a region is selected, Google will generate the report in a PDF form that's easy to share with workers in the field, the company said. The report covers six categories, including retail and recreation, which includes restaurants, museums, shopping centers, and so on, grocery and pharmacy, parks, including beaches, marinas, etc., transit stations, workplaces, and residences. And this, this article came from France. So it says, here in France, as shown in the post lead image, and there's an image that you can't see, 
um, that says there has been a massive decline in movement to most categories, up to 88%, with a 56% drop in workplace travel and an 18% increase in people staying at home. That's down to a government-mandated lockdown that prohibits any unnecessary travel, with penalties ranging from fines up to 1,500 euros and even prison time for extreme recidivists. In California, which has implemented some of the strictest confinement rules in the U.S., we see a drop of just 50% in retail and recreation zones. Those rules are still essentially self-enforced, however, which could explain why France has started flattening its infection curve, while the U.S. curve is a rocket ship traveling straight up. And that is true. Uh, I'm sure you've already seen this on the news, but if you look at the rate of growth of our incidents, and really, honestly, you can only really look at the death incidences because we don't have enough tests even though even though our ramp up on the the number of people infected is going up, that that's really understating what's going on because we have not tested nearly enough people. But you know, every death gets counted. So if you look at the death toll and how that grows over time, that's probably unfortunately a better indicator of how badly we've handled this so far. And a lot of that has to do with just staying home. Okay, so anyway, I won't get I won't get much higher on that soapbox. Let's move on. Now, the EFF has put out several articles related to COVID-19 and some of the things that it's seeing is going on. Uh, but one in particular caught my eye, and it's uh, warnings that they're putting out about privacy and surveillance during this time. And it's a long article, but I just want to read you like the, 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 these five points. And they, they kind of come out and said that anything we do, any monitoring or collection of data that we do uh, around COVID-19 and trying to prevent it spread really needs to take into consideration uh, these uh, these five principles. Number one, privacy intrusions must be necessary and proportionate. A program that collects en masse identifiable information about people must be scientifically justified and deemed necessary by public health experts for the purpose of containment. And that data processing must be proportionate to the need. For example, maintenance of 10 years of travel history of all people would not be proportionate to the need to contain a, COVID, a disease like COVID-19, which has a two-week incubation period. Number two, data collection based on science, not bias. Given the global scope of communicable diseases, there is a historical precedent for improper government containment efforts driven by bias based on nationality, ethnicity, religion, and race, rather than facts about particular individuals' actual likelihood of contracting the virus, such as their travel history or contact with potentially infected people. Today, we must ensure that any automated data systems used to contain COVID-19 do not erroneously identify members of specific demographic groups as particularly susceptible to infection. 3. Expiration. As in other major emergencies in the past, there is a hazard that the data surveillance infrastructure we build to contain COVID-19 may long outlive the crisis it was intended to address. The government and its corporate cooperators must roll back any invasive programs created in the name of public health after the crisis has been contained. 4. Transparency. Any government use of big data to track virus spread must be clearly and quickly explained to the public. This includes publication of detailed information about the information being gathered, the retention period for the information, the tools used to process that information, the way these tools guide public health decisions, and whether these tools have had any positive or negative outcomes. And finally, 5. Due process. If the government seeks to limit a person's rights, based on this big data surveillance, for example, to quarantine them based on the system's conclusions about their relationships or travel, then the person must have the opportunity to timely and fairly challenge these conclusions and limits. So I think I think those are good. I, and, and I think this is a balanced approach. EFF is obviously saying, you know, desperate times require desperate measures, but we've got to be really careful about what we do and how we do it and for how long we allow that to continue. 
And as we, you know, as we did after 9-11, we really kind of overreacted in a lot of different ways. And we're still dealing with a lot of things that came about during that time that really should have sunsetted a long time ago. And I, I want to call attention to that one little part there where I said, you know, they have to, you know, as part of the transparency, they say that they've also got to publish whether or not these tools have had any positive or negative outcomes. And that's important because a lot of these things, you know, they say that if we, if we do this, we'll be able to stop the spread or whatever. But if, if it's a really invasive procedure and at the end of the day, when all is said and done, they haven't really been able to show that it's made any real difference, then the trade-off's not worth it. And that program needs to stop. All right, one more quick story on the uh, on the coronavirus, and then we'll move on to other topics. Um, and I've talked about this already, but this is these are some specifics that I thought might be helpful. Um, and this is from CNET, and it's uh, it's about coronavirus stimulus scams and other scams, and how to identify them, and so on. And I definitely wanted to kind of go over this and give you some concrete examples of what's going on, and, and some concrete tips on how to avoid being scammed. All right, so here's the article. It says. As with any public crisis, the spread of the coronavirus has created a new crop of hackers targeting people who are awaiting their stimulus check, who are working from home, or who are just trying to stay healthy. Add in April Fool's Day, and you need to be on guard against all kinds of scams and misinformation found online, in your email inbox, and even in your text messages. A recent release from the FBI's Internet Crime Complaint Center offers some solid advice on what to watch out for. And this is a quote from the FBI. It says, Scammers are leveraging the COVID-19 pandemic to steal your money, your personal information, or both. Don't let them. Protect yourself and do your research before, and then one of these five things it says before, A, clicking on links purporting to provide information on the virus, B, donating to a charity online or through social media, C, contributing to a crowdfunding campaign, D, purchasing products online, or E, giving up your personal information in order to receive money or other benefits, unquote. Unsolicited emails that prompt you to click on an attachment should always raise a red flag when you're checking your inbox, but these classic email phishing scams still lure unsuspecting users into downloading malicious items and giving up their login information every day. With the news that the government is going to issue payments of up to $1,200 in coronavirus relief to U.S. taxpayers in the coming month, the FBI recently issued a warning to be alert for attackers masquerading as the agency and asking for personal information supposedly in order to receive your check. And quoting them again, it says, While talk of economic stimulus checks has been in the news cycle, government agencies are not sending unsolicited emails seeking your private information in order to send you money, unquote. So again, remember, never reveal personal or financial information in an email or respond to requests for it. If you're looking to track COVID-19 news with an app, it's a good idea to keep an eye out for uh, malware traps. Early in March, a malicious Android app called COVID Lock claimed to help users chart the spread of the virus. Instead, it led to a slew of Android phones being locked and held for ransom by hackers. Meanwhile, Reason Labs recently discovered hackers who are using coronavirus tracking map sites to inject malware into people's browsers. As reported by MarketWatch, coronavirus-related website name registrations are 50% more likely to be from malicious actors. As Android Authority points out, setting a password on your phone can help protect you from a lockout attack if you're using Android Nougat, which is one of the versions of Android. It's also a good idea to stick to the Google Play Store for any coronavirus-related apps to better your odds of installing benign software. During a disease outbreak or natural disaster, the better angels of our nature compel us to open our wallets to the less fortunate through charitable giving and donation. Before we follow that impulse, we need to take an extra few moments to make sure the charity isn't a funnel into the bank account of a predatory impersonator. Taking a few moments to review the Federal Trade Commission's charity scams page could save you the heartbreak of an emptied checking account. You could also improve your odds by searching such sites as GuideStar.org and Give.org for the name of your charity before donating. 
random Facebook groups offering supposed home cures for COVID-19, long Twitter threads from self-appointed health experts and cleverly designed websites, there are dozens of ways misinformation can lure unsuspecting victims into a position of vulnerability. While it can be hard to sort the solid information from the scam baiting, here are a couple of ways. And they give three things here. They say, one, by clicking on the About section of a Facebook group, you can see whether that group has changed its name multiple times to reflect new national crises a sure sign that the group is trawling for an audience rather than promoting reliable news. Two, keep an eye on the official sources on Twitter, including the accounts of trusted news sites and their news reporters and avoiding political operatives where possible. Three, if a site claims to be an official government publication, check the URL to see that it ends in .gov. And I'll add my own to that, which I've talked about before, and that is snopes.com, S-N-O-P-E-S.com. If you get an email that looks like it could be a scam or too good to be true or too scary to be true. Snopes.com does a fantastic job of looking into those things and making sure that they're not hoaxes. And in some cases, they're partially true and partially not. And Snopes will go through and give you the details on what's what. And most assuredly, check for scams and hoaxes before you forward these things on to anybody else. Okay, last up. You know, during this time with all the COVID stuff going on and everybody staying at home and not, you know, working from home and generally not traveling much and not being able to see anybody in person, you know, we're social creatures. We want to talk. We, we want to interact. You know, we get a little stir crazy. So, you know, we, we want to reach out. And of course, one way to do that is using video conferencing. And, you know, we've had that for a long time, but now that we're all cooped up at home, you know, we, you know, naturally still want to interact with our friends and family. And one way that we've done that is through video conferencing. And one of the most popular ones today, one of the most popular services for this is Zoom. And, you know, I've used it. Um, It's very, very easy to use and it works very well. It's not hard to understand why it's so popular. And in in most cases, you don't have to even create an account to use it. But um, that said, uh, even though Zoom's popularity has soared, I've seen estimates of over three to 400% in in the last few weeks, as we've all been staying home, it's really exposed a lot of security and privacy problems that they've had. Let me, let me just read you a few headlines and you'll get the idea. These are, these are just headlines. Thousands of Zoom video calls left exposed on the open web. Zoom removes data mining LinkedIn feature. Don't believe Zoom, its videos are not end-to-end encrypted. Zoom iOS app sends data to Facebook even if you don't have a Facebook account. So I was, I was going to read this really long article uh, from Bruce Schneier, who we've had on the program, uh, who's a world-renowned cryptographer and a, an advocate for privacy. Um, anyway, he has this really great blog article, and I'll just refer you to it. I'll put a note in the show notes, but if you just go to schneier.com, that's S-C-H-N-E-I-E-R.com, and go to his blog, you'll see this. It's called Security and Privacy Implications of Zoom. And he is normally a very terse writer. He doesn't, you know, spend a lot of time going off more than he should, but he, this is a long article and it, it's long because there are just so many things to talk about. Zoom has really done some, their security is awful. They're, they, they, they said they were in encrypted, but they're really not, which means that they were what they call link encrypted, which means that your video, if you're having a chat with somebody, your video goes to Zoom encrypted. So between here and there, it's encrypted, but at zoom, it's not meaning that they can record it and save it and look at it. Uh, and then it's re-encrypted to send to whoever else you're talking to. Uh, that is not end end encryption. End end encryption means literally from you to whoever you're talking to, every stop in between there cannot read it because it's encrypted. However, they claim they were end end encrypted and that's not true. And of course they just, 
it was just shown that they, like one of the titles I just read said, they had recorded a bunch of, you know, people had recorded some of their meetings on Zoom or stored on a server on the internet. And that server was not protected, meaning that other people could be those same videos that had no, should have had no access to them. And it goes on and on. Uh, there are other problems too. And then there's, then there are the privacy problems. They were caught, as I just said, selling information to, uh, to Facebook and they had a screw up that they were using some sort of a LinkedIn service plugin that shared your LinkedIn data with other people without you, without you knowing it. It's just horrendous. And, you know, Bruce does make a point to say that these are probably all mistakes and, you know, mostly mistakes and that they are trying to correct them. But, but he also goes on to say that this is just the tip of the iceberg. This is all we know about so far. And we're going to find out more certainly in the future. Now, you know, because of all this bad press, uh, Zoom is scrambling to fix these things and address these issues. But I think Bruce's basic point is that they did not do the due diligence to begin with. These are not going to be the only problems with this service. There's going to be a lot more. And at least until they can get their act together, we should not be using Zoom. Now, there are some things you can do. You know, if, if someone, if Zoom is your, you know, someone's created a meeting on Zoom and you can't tell them to change it to something else. You know, there are some settings in Zoom. You can set passwords on meetings and other privacy settings. So you should definitely look into those if you're, if you're dead set on still using Zoom or if you don't have a choice, um, you can still... Uh, when you set up a meeting, you can set some privacy controls on that meeting that will help. But my tip of the week is going to be, of course, other services that you should be using instead of Zoom. And I'll give you, I'll give you three options. First, if you're talking to people that are using Apple products, and that would be Macintosh computers, iPhones, and iPads. Uh, if everybody in the video conference is using an Apple product, then you can just use FaceTime. Uh, it's built in, it's already there. And it's fairly easy to add more people um, to, to your conference. It looks kind of cool. They've got these little floating windows that are a little bit annoying. Basically, if you're looking at a computer, it shows a little window for everybody kind of floating around. And whoever's talking the most gets kind of blown up in the middle as the big window. And they kind of drift and move around depending on who's talking. That can be a little bit, a little bit annoying. But it works really well. And it's end-to-end -end encrypted. Everything I'm talking about here, all the three services I'll recommend are all truly end-to-end -end encrypted. Now, of course... We're not in, you know, there's a lot of people out there who don't use Apple products, um, including, you know, Windows computers and Android mobile phones. And for that, you've got a couple options. Um, honestly, this is a new one I've learned about recently, and I just tried it out just to see what it was like. And it was, it was fine. It worked well. It's called Jitsi, uh, J-I-T-S-I. And if you go to jitsi.org, uh, you'll see all about it. It's an open source project, so it's free and maintained by, you know, a group of dedicated software engineers of some sort. And it is truly free and private. It is ended encrypted. And like Zoom, you don't even have to create an account to use it. If you're just using your web browser, you don't even have to install any software. Uh, you just go to the Jitsi site, you create a meeting. And by to create the meeting, you basically create a meeting name, some long set of characters uh, that could be anything you want. And that creates your personal link. And then you send that link to whoever you want to join and they can join without signing again, without signing up for any other account, without installing any software. Now, if they're on a mobile device, they will have to install the Jitsi app, but again, it's free and it's easy to do. And it seems to work pretty well. So that's basically as easy as zoom in the sense that it either works on a web browser or with a very simple app and it's totally free and you don't have to create an account. So that's a uh, less, lot less friction than I would definitely give that one a shot. And lastly, of course, I can't go without saying Signal. Uh, Signal is the basically gold standard for secure communications. Uh, kind of started off being, you know, text messages because it spun off from WhatsApp, but has since added voice and video calling as well, including conference calling. 
Now, of course, everybody who does this will have to sign up for an account and will have to download some sort of software. So in that sense, it's less, you know, it's less convenient than Jitsi or FaceTime. But, you know, maybe this is the time to do it. This is, uh, Signal is a really great app. It's really good to support these efforts, by the way, Jitsi and Signal. You know, give them some press, use your social media and stuff to talk to people about these things and give them as alternatives to Zoom. Uh, I'm writing a blog article on this right now, too, by the way. So if you want to go to firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com, it's probably the top blog article right now. Or if you just search on Zoom or Jitsi, you'll find the article right away. And that's an easy way to share that with people too. And it comes with all the links that you need to download anything you download or go to the websites. It's all right there. And as an added bonus, that article also has some really cool ways to do remote games, uh, board games and card games, uh, many of which are free and require no sign up whatsoever. So go to firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com and check out that article that has all the information I just talked about. All right, that'll wrap it up this week. We had a lot of stuff to cover. I'm, I'm sure there'll be more in the future. Again, never, never a dull moment. And with, you know, with crises and like the pandemic going on, there's just going to be even more stuff to talk about, unfortunately, because the bad guys love to take advantage of these situations, to take advantage of you. A couple more things before I let you go. Uh, I wanted to talk about the Flatten the Curve Tech Summit. Um, it's being put on by some folks that we've had on the show before, including Sean O'Brien and Corey Doctorow. And it's a three-day conference where they're going to be talking about issues uh, surrounding the virus from all different aspects. You can register online at flattenthecurve.tech. That's T-E-C-H, flattenthecurve.tech. You can pay what you want to register uh, with the suggested registration being $25. I've already registered myself. And this will take place on April 21st through the 23rd. Again, all online with some really great speakers. So uh, if you've got some time to kill like a lot of us do, that'd be a great one to check out. And lastly, I will be covering a lot of this stuff on my blog and newsletter as well. So definitely go to firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com. You can check out some of the stuff I've already written. And if you want it automatically sent to you every other week, uh, you can go to the website as well and sign up for my newsletter. They're almost always the same articles. It's uh, just easier for me to do both. So you got to have your choice. You can either have them automatically sent to you and just arrive naturally in your inbox every Sunday night, or rather every other Sunday night. Or if you want to go and you know, read what you want to read, uh, you can just go to the website there. Or if you want to read back issues, things, if you haven't signed up for the newsletter yet, there's a whole bunch of stuff there from previous newsletters that you can check out as well. As always, I would deeply appreciate it if you would take a minute and go uh, add a nice review to the book on Amazon.com or to the podcast on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you're getting this from. It really does make a huge difference. And if you, uh, if you want to help out, that's a great way to do it. Uh, and if, of course, if you want to go a little bit further, you can go to patreon.com, become a patron, and you can get the inside track as I'm you know, starting to work on the new book, on the fourth edition of the book, and some other great options. So check that out as well, patreon.com. All right, everybody, that's going to do it for this week. Stay safe, stay healthy, stay home. And as always, until next week, don't get caught with your dropping down.